Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, in person, we are at our building on Hill Road. We gather together for worship in song. We pray together. We study God's Word together. Uh, we actually do the, the same Bible study we're doing this morning online. We have small groups that meet throughout the week, and that's our big emphasis outside of Sunday mornings is our small groups, uh, to connect together, to pray together, to you know, basically be, be connected to one another as a family of faith. We also have a youth group that meets at 7 p.m. on Tuesday nights, and our kids' church meets right now during Sunday mornings, uh, you know, come in for a few songs, everybody starts out in the main meeting room, and then the kids go off to their classes. Now... Uh, someone was asking me, do we have a list posted of all of our small groups? And we don't. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. Uh, some of that is that some of the small groups move times, uh, the young adult small group. Uh, I'm honestly never sure which night they're meeting on. Um, they have flexibility that way, and that's awesome. Uh, some small groups need a little more anonymity, and that's fine too. So it just depends on the small group. But if you email small groups at faithonhill.com, you'll find out more information. There is an online small group that meets every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Um, and if you send an email to the, the small group's email, we can send you the link. Uh, we don't post it publicly because uh, I've been in Zoom meetings that have been bombed, you know, if you've ever been in a Zoom bomb. It's not a good thing. So that's what's going on there. We have youth group Tuesday nights at 7. We have small groups that meet throughout the week, and we gather together online and in person on Sunday mornings. Now, online you're here. I don't know which way you're connecting with us, but whichever way you are, welcome. We are glad you are here. You can search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and then you can subscribe and like all of our podcasts and Sunday morning content. We have a live stream on our faith, uh, website, faithonhill.com, which also goes to our Facebook page, and you can follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. We're continuing our study in the book of Philippians, and we're going to talk about how to live holy lives without being jerks. So turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. The word holy is not a word that the average American uses often outside of profanity. Or Christmas. Those are the two times that Americans use the word holy. Either at Christmas time, you know, oh holy night, we sing certain songs that are Christmas songs, uh, or we hear them sung, that use the word holy, and we understand that it's something special, religious, sacred even. Or we use it as the beginning of an explicative. You know, even if it's like a, a just an off-brand, off low-rent version, like, you know, holy cow or something like that. But the idea is that um, those are the two times we use that word. The word holy means set apart, sacred, consecrated. It's something special and significant. If something or some place is holy, it is significant. I saw a video recently on uh, social media somewhere. And this gal, young gal, but she had, she had lost her husband. They'd been married a couple of years, and he had uh, cancer or something, and he passed away. Tragic story. And it showed a picture of him proposing to her, and it was in this gazebo in like a big city park. And she went back. It, the video was her going back for the first time. Now, I don't know if that's real. I always feel like these kind of tearjerker sort of videos are, are just made up to get clicks. But, but the idea is that if that was all true, then for this person 
That gazebo, that city park, that place is a holy, sacred, set-apart place in her life. It's, it's a place of remembrance. There are places that are holy, that have special significance to us. And it might not be holy or sacred or significant to anyone else, but they are to us. There's a little stretch of beach on the Puget Sound. I know where we scattered my dad's ashes. It's a holy place to me. Um, you know, there are significant places, special places, places of great just personal consecration, separateness. It's, it's special to me. Some things are just universally special or sacred. Uh, this last week, a 16-year-old boy in England cut down the sycamore tree at the Sycamore Gap on Hadrian's Wall. I've been to Hadrian's Wall, but I haven't been to that tree. But if you're my age, you've seen it. It's a very famous tree, highly photographed. Um, there's a scene in uh, Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves, the one with Kevin Costner, uh, where that takes place at that tree. It's, it's, you'd see it and you'd be like, oh, I've seen that tree before. A 16-year-old boy went and chopped it down, an act of vandalism, intentional act. That tree was, was sacred to so many people. I was seeing uh, people commenting in, uh, about it, you know, that uh, they, they'd proposed there or been proposed to there, um, that they had scattered ashes nearby, uh, that they had, you know, just remembered going on a, on a family vacation and, and spending time and have a picnic there. It was a, it was a place of significance, a sacred place. Holiness set apart. When Paul started the letter to the Philippians, we talked about it last week, he wrote to them and he said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people at Philippi. Then down in verse 11, he says that he prays that the Christians in Philippi would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Then, in verse 27, this is where we left off last week, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, that I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle that you saw that I had, and now you hear that I have. Paul writes to the holy people at the church in Philippi, prays that they would be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, and then says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy. The charge that we've been given is to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, to live lives that are holy, to be a church that is righteous. Now, you might say, well, that was just the church in Philippi. I've read the whole Bible, cover to cover, many times. And I can tell you this, that there is nowhere in the whole Bible that would tell me that this is only for the church in Philippi. That Paul, Peter, John, Luke, Mark, Barnabas, 
Aquila, Priscilla, the, the, the daughters of Philip who prophesied in Antioch. Think of a church leader that's talked about in the Bible in the New Testament. Any of them could written to any church and said the same things. From so-and-so to God's holy people in this city, we are praying that you are full of the righteousness and being filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus. And whatever you do, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is the charge we've been given. We have been given the charge to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. But how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we live lives that are worthy of the gospel? How are we filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus? How can we be rightly called the holy people at the church in Milwaukee, Oak Grove, and Gladstone? I think here from verse 27 through verse 30, the Apostle Paul lines that out for us. In verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, stand firm. Conduct yourselves. Now, this is interesting because verse 27 might be one of the more interesting verses in the Bible. Sometimes, let me back this all up. Okay. We talk about this a lot, but I think it's worth repeating. The Bible is not one book. It is a collection of 66 books written over a 1,500-year period by over 40 authors in two primary languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. And then there is a smattering of other languages uh, that are used or quoted or what have you, Aramaic, um, uh, Persian, uh, some local dialects, different things but primarily Greek and Hebrew. Okay. Verse 27 in the, in the original Greek texts is just a couple of words. And it all centers around this one word. Politiomeo. I'm probably not saying it right. I'm not an expert in Greek. I took like Greek 101 in undergrad, in grad school. I took... Uh, the grad school equivalent of Greek 101, and uh, I took Hebrew a little bit in grad school. But it's just basic comprehensive stuff, like just your f- enough to get your foot in the door so that you can read the guys who really are experts of this. And I appreciate and respect people who just get languages. I have to work at it. But I'll say this. From what I understand, this word, politiomeo, And you might guess that the word politics has some root in this word. But this word was all encompassing to an idea. You said this one word and everybody understood this big concept that you were getting at. This last week, Seattle Mariners were playing Houston Astros and one of the relief pitchers struck Julio Rodriguez out. They're both from the Dominican Republic. They both have the same management. They know each other. And this pitcher, it doesn't happen, but he, after he struck him out, he charged at Julio. He started walking straight at him and then started just shouting at him. And at first, something triggered and then Julio started coming at him. So the, 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 um, the, the umpire went and stopped Julio. Hey, you can't do that, man. Well, the umpires, all, they're all English speakers. They didn't get it. And apparently... 
Hector Naris, the, the, picture, the pitcher from the Houston Astros, used a word that in Spanish, and specifically Spanish for people from the Dominican Republic, was horrifically offensive. And it's a word that we could like, like I got a rough translation of what the word meant and I speak a little Spanish, you know? I don't speak that kind of Spanish, but I, I speak a little Spanish and I got a rough translation of what the word meant and I understood the basic concept. I also kind of got the, the idea as I was reading about stuff that I would have to use five extremely profane words to equal what this one word is trying to convey. That happens in translating languages. This one word in Greek has to be translated into like a full, and if you look at verse 27, a fairly long sentence. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourself worthy. In, and then I looked at another translation because I was just happening to read. I pulled open my Bible app. Now, my physical Bible is New International Version. On my phone, I read out of the New Living Translation. And I noticed they were very, very different. They were very, very different. One said, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The other said, stand firm as citizens of heaven. Which is it? And so I started looking at other translations. I pulled out the, the dusty old King James Version. It said, conduct your conversation. So I've got manner, I've got conversation, I've got stand firm as a citizen. Which, which is it? And every, every Bible translation translates this verse a little bit differently. And they're all getting at aspects of what this word encompasses. And I appreciate Bible translators. I've talked a lot in the Starting Points podcast and the 20-Minute Bible Study uh, about Bible translation. And so you can go look at those uh, podcasts, and they're, they're hopefully valuable resources. But I talk a lot about how we have different Bible translations and why we do and why I'm thankful that we do. But this is one of those verses that it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Why is it that every translation that I'm looking at comes at it differently? And the reason is that this word was about citizenship. You see, Philippi, the city of Philippi, was geographically in Greece, but it was a Roman colony. What that meant was that, yes, geographically, it exists in the land of Greece. But if you were born there, you were most likely Roman in ethnicity or culture, and you were born with Roman citizenship. That just because you were born in the Roman Empire did not mean you were a citizen. You know, Jesus was born in the Roman Empire, yet he had no Roman citizenship. All of the apostles except Paul. Paul was Jewish, yes, but he was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a Roman city. So being born there granted him Roman citizenship. That was a big deal, by the way. So that uh, in the book of Acts, the Roman centurion actually arrested Paul because somebody had told him that he was causing this riot and he was some kind of insurrectionist. And so they were about to like whip him and beat him senselessly. And Paul goes, hey, uh, is it lawful for you to do that to a Roman citizen? Because a Roman citizen had rights. A Roman citizen couldn't just be, be beaten or mistreated. There had to be due process, just cause, all of this stuff. And it freaked the Roman centurion out because he's like, oh, crap. 
Did I just erect, arrest a Roman citizen? Did I, just, did I just take into custody somebody who has protection under the law? And, and he says to him, how did you get your citizenship? This guy was a centurion, but he wasn't born Roman. He had joined the army or been forced into the army. And he said, I had to pay a lot of money to get my citizenship. He had to, he had to pay a lot of money and then he could have his citizenship. Paul said, I was born a citizen. When Jesus was on his way to the cross, he had been so abused, mistreated, physically was unable to carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. So the Roman soldiers grabbed somebody out of the crowd and were told it was a man named Simon from Niger. And they brought Simon and said, you carry the cross. Had Simon been a citizen, he could have said, I am a citizen of Rome. And they would have said, oh, sorry, next person. That's a big claim. If you claim you're a citizen of Rome and you're not, like that's, that's a death penalty kind of deal. It's a big deal to say that. So they made Simon carry the cross. But Paul said, hey, I'm a citizen of Rome. I'd really like for you to not rip my back open with that whip, please. And he used that citizenship to get himself eventually to Rome to speak in front of the emperor about Jesus. And Paul was either writing this letter while he was in chains. Most likely, he either wrote it while he was in chains um, in the Holy Land in Caesarea Philippi waiting to be sent to see Caesar, or he wrote it while he was in chains in Rome waiting to see Caesar. We're not sure which was which. But either way, this idea of citizenship was a big deal. And if you were in Philippi, if you were a Christian in the city of Philippi, it's very likely that you were a Roman citizen. And you understood that citizenship meant something. And so when Paul says, whatever happened, politeiomeo, worthy of the gospel, that would have meant something big to them. This word, politeiomeo, speaks of your entire responsibility in public life as a citizen. Part of it is politics. If you had to vote or if you had to uh, you know, take official role somewhere. You were called upon to be part of like the civic council or to do something as your responsibility as a Roman citizen. So part of it was political, but part of it was also social. How you spoke in public, how you dealt with people in public, your whole manner of public life was wrapped into this word as a Roman. It meant something. So Paul says to them, he uses this word, And he's saying, stand firm. Whatever happens, conduct yourself as a, in the New Living Translation, it says, as a citizen of heaven. Whatever happens, conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is what it says in the New Living Translation. In the King James, it says, whatever happened, let your conversation be full of the gospel. How do we live as God's holy people, being filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus, worthy in our manner and our speech and our actions? I think it goes back to citizenship. There was nothing more valuable in that time and place than Roman citizenship. It afforded you rights that no one else had. It afforded you privileges and protections that no one else had. It was something that cost a great deal of money to obtain and secure. 
And we don't quite have that, but I will say that being a citizen of certain places has value. I know somebody that has tri-citizenship. She was born in America to Canadian parents, and her father is a British citizen. So she has three passports. Before Brexit, she had four passports because she also had an EU passport. So she had four passports. That was valuable. A Canadian citizen can go places that people from America cannot go. Canadians can get into certain places a lot easier because everybody's like, oh, Canada, yeah, they're nice people. We like them. Not those Americans, right? Like there are places where it's easier for somebody with a Canadian passport to go. If you have a British passport because of the Commonwealth, there's countries all over the world that it's far easier to do business in, to travel to, to interact with. But then you have that protection of that American passport. If something goes wrong, you're in one of those countries that you couldn't easily get to with your Canadian, you know, American passport, so you had to use your Canadian. But something goes wrong, you're not going to the Canadian embassy. Sorry, Canada. You're going to the American embassy where there are Marines. These people will get me out. Where is our citizenship? Where is our citizenship? We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you are somebody who is part of God's holy people, then our citizenship is not America or Canada or Mexico. Our citizenship is not in China, nor is it in Russia, nor is it in Ukraine. We are members of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. We're here as sojourners, as travelers, ambassadors maybe. We aren't. Now, I'm still American. I still vote. I care about what's going on. I'm a member at large at the local PTO. I, uh, I, I want to see things good in our community. I care about what's happening here in Oak Grove or Gladstone or Milwaukee. I want to see the world around me blessed and flourishing. But I understand that while America is the country I was born in and it's the place I have my citizenship, that my true allegiance and citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. Parts of the church have lost that. Parts of the church need to reclaim it and regain it. That we are connected one with another. And it's not just one side or the other. That there are people of all points of view who will say, I have more in common with a non-believer who agrees with me on this political issue. Or I have more common with a non-believer who agrees with me philosophically. And I don't think that's to be the case. Paul writes to them and he says, stand firm, striving together in one spirit. So the person who's on the other end of the political spectrum on on some issue from me, but is a believer in Jesus, is my sister or my brother. And I have far more in common with them than I do with the non-believer who agrees with me on most things. Jesus is more important. And there are people like there are people I have nothing in common with except Jesus. It's like what what are you into, Adam? Well, do you oh, do you like music? Well, I like '80s music and I like old country music. Is it The Smiths or is it Willie Nelson? Okay, um, I I don't know. I don't have a connection there. Uh, Adam, do you do you like 
Yeah, I love baseball. Oh, I hate baseball. Okay, don't have a lot in common. Do you love Jesus? Oh, yes. Then you know what? I have everything in common with you because we have Jesus. I've met people from other parts of the world, totally different backgrounds, totally different experiences, totally different points of view, but we find out we both love Jesus. Instant connection. This person is my brother and my sister, and I will spend eternity with them because Jesus has saved us. Stand firm together as citizens not of this earth, but of heaven. In one spirit. And what spirit is that? Oh, it's the spirit of love. Oh, it's the spirit of brotherhood or commonality. No, it's the Holy Spirit of God. The only thing that connects me to somebody else because I can try to warm feelings and, and kind of you know, rally myself to this, but really what connects me to somebody else is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and brought me from darkness into light and from death into life is the same Holy Spirit that did that for many, many others, countless others, my family of, of faith. The Holy Spirit in us connects us, binds us together. Verse 27 says that we should strive together, common purpose, common unity. We're here together because we have the mission of the gospel. We have the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus. And in verse 29, he says that it has been granted to the church in Philippi not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him. Now, most of us have not suffered. Not really. We've been inconvenienced. Maybe we've been insulted. I do know some people, and I know a couple people at Faith on Hill, who I would say they have been persecuted for their faith. I don't know if I ever have been. I wouldn't put myself in that category. I've been inconvenienced for my faith. I've been insulted for my faith. I've been judged for my faith. I don't think I've ever been persecuted. I was talking to somebody just this last week who said, you know, the church has been so persecuted the last few years. And I said, can you tell me how? Or what you're saying is the church has been inconvenienced or the church has been insulted. Has it been persecuted? There are places in America where I believe churches have been persecuted. I do believe that there are places where, uh, you know, even locally that are opposed to people that love Jesus. That being said, their calling was to suffer. Paul was writing this letter while he was imprisoned in chains. The indication is that the church in Philippi was experiencing some sort of persecution. Maybe somebody was being brought up on false charges. Maybe they'd been kicked out of the trade union. Maybe they had been ostracized by family. We don't know exactly what it is. We know that the Apostle Paul, when he was uh, leading the church in Philippi, that he was thrown in prison with some other people, that there was a history of persecution there, so maybe there was more of it. But their calling in that moment was to suffer in some way for the name of Jesus. For them, living holy, sacred, set-apart lives involved pain. And so he calls them, stand firm, live as citizens of heaven in how you act, your manner, how you speak, your conversation, and, and how you connect with one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And you may say, Adam, that's great. That's really inspiring. And if I was in Philippi, when Paul wrote this letter, maybe that would really speak to me. But I live in 2023 in America, and you just said that most Christians and most churches have never experienced persecution. So what does this have to do with me? I believe that there are many people in America and in our community who have only ever experienced the concept of holiness, holy living, to be set apart before God, to be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus, they've only experienced it through broken experiences and through broken people. Talk about holiness, and that immediately brings to mind what's called legalism. Laws, a certain set of laws and rules that you have to keep, and if you don't keep these things, at least on the outside, then you are a bad person then you are, uh, you know, you're a bad Christian, you're a bad person, you're shameful. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently, and I didn't know they had grown up in the church, and they were telling me about their church experience. And they said, I actually had a pretty good church experience, but my sister didn't, and she, she was shamed, and, and it wasn't good. I have plenty of friends who have talked about church experiences where they were made to feel awful about themselves, made to feel less loved, uh, made to feel that they were somehow dirty or, or shameful to be around. Many people have only experienced conversations and concepts of holiness and righteous living in these kind of broken experiences because people are broken because people like they want to do the things of God and they know that the world around them is broken, but they themselves are broken. So it's only through anger and pain. You know, I've known a lot of people who are, the term is dry drunks, meaning that they've stopped drinking, but they haven't dealt with any of the root underlying causes and there's just this anger and bitterness comes out. That's like the way that they keep their edge and keep themselves sober or something. And it's like sobriety is great, but the way they live out their sobriety is just painful for themselves and everyone else around them. And it leads to the question, is it even possible to seek the holiness of God without ourselves becoming toxic people or a toxic church? Can we try to say we want to keep, we want to be serious about our faith. We want to take the things that God has given us and say we're going to live in those as seriously as we can. I think there's a solution to that. I think there's a way to take the, 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 the ways of Jesus seriously without becoming toxic. As we keep on studying the book of Philippians and, and, and he talks about other ways of living holy lives, of living in the righteousness of God, I think there are ways and there is a way to live in the holiness of God without becoming toxic or shameful to ourselves or others. And that's this. Love first. Love first. That there are a lot of churches that talk about love. And they'll just say, God loves you and you are loved and we want to share love. And then what happens is they just leave it there. And so this other set of churches will say, they, those churches only talk about love and they never talk about truth or righteousness or God's holy standard. And so any church that talks about love, they immediately just go, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. And I think they're both wrong. They're both mistaken. Love is first and foremost. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this book of Philippians, wrote to a different church, the church in Corinth, and said, there will be three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We have to start with love. If we just start with a list of rules, 
We're going to stand firm. We're not going to compromise. We're going to keep this. We're not going to give up this. If we just start with a list of rules and we don't start with love, then we will bring the same shame and bitterness and false righteousness and, and all the stuff that you see the Pharisees doing in the Gospels. And Jesus is like, what are you guys all about? You're keeping all these rules, but you're, you're horrible people and you don't know God. So we start with love, but we don't end there. We have more grace because even when we fall short, even when we fail to do these things as talked about, you know what? I didn't stand firm. You know what? I didn't live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I wasn't living in one spirit with my brothers and sisters. I wasn't striving together with my church family. I was actually striving against them or I was striving apart, but I wasn't with everyone else. I wasn't walking in the calling God has given me. The grace of God is there. The undeserved favor of God is there. The, the grace of God intercedes when we cannot do things ourselves, when we've missed when we've messed up. And then people leave it there and they say, well, we just seek but love and grace. Oh, you know what? It's okay. You, you did that again. God will forgive you and it's all grace. But what if there's more than that? And then you say, but yeah, but whenever somebody talks about being more than that, then it just becomes about rules and making people feel bad. Okay, then focus on your own self. Mind your own business. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating. Seek the holiness of God in your own life. Look, start with love. Live in the grace of God, but then seek the holiness of God in your own life. God, how can I know you better? How can I just be part of what you are all about? The answer is this. The Trinity is so described here in Philippians 1. Actively seek God the Father. Philippians 1 starts out to all of God's holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we can know the Father, like we talked about two weeks ago, Philip, one of the apostles, said to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you know me, you know the Father. The only way that you can come to God the Father is through me. So actively seek God the Father. Prayer, worship, community, immersing yourself in the Bible. The only way to do that is through knowing Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from Jesus. We want to take our faith seriously. We want to take what God has given us seriously. We live in a world that is broken, that celebrates violence, that celebrates sexual immorality and brokenness, that celebrates broken families and says, it's okay, do what's best for you even if what's best for you is destroying your children or destroying the community around you or even if it's destroying yourself, but it's not what you want. We live in a world that, that is totally fine with corruption as long as it's corruption on our side. We're totally fine with vice as long as the person committing it agrees with us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to break that up, to change us. Because what God has given us is his truth, which is totally counter to the world around us. When Paul says to the church in Philippi, stand firm, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven in how you live, how you speak, how you act, how you connect, that's completely opposite to everything we've ever been taught as Americans. And it doesn't matter whether you're an old American or a young American, whether you're a liberal or a conservative American. It doesn't matter what you're, you're traditionalist or you're an anarchist. It doesn't matter. Everything in the Bible runs counter to all of that. 
And we need the power of the Holy Spirit that can only come from God. And the only way that we can know God is through Jesus. And as we do, and as we receive, God starts to make his his work known. I'm going to end with a story uh, that kind of sums up what I'm talking about here. When I was in high school, uh, my sophomore year of high school, I went to a youth group that was a legalistic youth group. It had a lot of rules. If you did something that the youth pastor, his wife thought was wrong, then they kind of came down on you for it. Now, if you, it was funny though, because they were doing things in their own life that I was like, hey, that doesn't seem right. I still love them, by the way. I still, we talked last week about having relationship and how I try to have relationship with every church I've ever been a part of in some way. I still have some relationship with that youth pastor and his wife uh, through social media. And actually, my dad uh, works with one of their kids now, uh, grown-up kids. But So I love them. And, and if, if for some reason they ever saw this video, I want them to know how much love I have for them. But what I want to say is this. When I was a sophomore in high school, I remember we had a youth event, and this was back when we had CDs, right? The little digital discs where music was played. And they were like, you know, you got to get rid of all the filthy music in your life. And so kids brought CDs, and we broke them, and we threw them into a bonfire or something that youth groups did back in the 90s. And I remember knowing a bunch of people who did that through their CDs, or some people still had cassettes, because if you, they were still at making cassettes, and if you were like in middle school or high school, and you didn't have as much money, you know, you could buy a cassette, and, and it was cheaper, and uh, so a bunch of kids did, and it meant nothing, because I know those kids still, some of them, and the, nothing they did there, throwing out the oh, filthy, worldly music that they had, didn't change the inside of their heart, it was just something to make them look good on the outside, and I remember I didn't do it, I was just didn't feel like it was something that was like right. Like I would be hypocritical. And I would have been. Because honestly, that night after that youth event, I remember a few friends and I, we, we went to some other place and there was some sinful stuff going on. And, and I'm not proud of it, nor, nor am I thankful for it. I repent of it. But like it would have been false religion, religiosity, legalism to make myself look good on the outside. But several years later, or it would have been about three, four years later, I was in my early 20s. And I remember I had some CDs that I still consider musically to be brilliant. And God told me, I just felt the Holy Spirit of God say, Adam, get rid of it. And I was like, oh, I pray about it. And over a few days, I just kept feeling like God was saying to me, Adam, this is not for you anymore. The anger and the the bitterness and the rage and the violence that is in this stuff. It's just not for you. It's not who you're supposed to be. It's not who I'm making you to be. And nobody made me. Nobody knew there was nothing public. I just went, I broke the CDs in half. I threw them away quietly and I went about my day. It's the only time God's ever told me to do that. But the point is this. I was seeking Jesus in my life. Holy Spirit's working in my life. I'm doing these things as best I can, standing firm as a citizen of heaven, together with my church, and one, you know, walking in our calling, the whole thing. And God's doing his work. Is it possible to live holy lives without being a jerk? I sure think it is. If the love of God is so full in our hearts, then that is what will flow out. And then people will look and they'll see, hey, you know what? Something is different about that person. Something is changing in that person's life.
There are people I know that if you had known them 10 years ago, you'd be like, that's not the same person. People in this church who if you'd known them five years ago, you would have said, that's not the same person. But God is working and moving and changing people's lives. God, speaking to us through the Bible, is calling us to be his holy people, connected together in a church family, striving for the same goal of the good news of Jesus. And the way that we do that, the way that we live in that calling, the way that we walk in it without becoming toxic ourselves, is seeking the love of God, living in the grace of God, focused on our own business instead of the business of others, but actively seeking God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And I believe the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is there and breaks chains. Maybe you're watching this right now and you are in chains of addiction, bondages of immorality. You can't you see, feel like the same cycles of, of bitterness and resentment, the same cycles of brokenness, the same cycles of addiction just keep happening over and over and over again. The freedom of Jesus is here. And I believe that is true. I believe that part of that is living together and reaching out. You can right now, where you are at, wherever you are, call out to Jesus and he hears you. But then reach out to his people. Connect with a church family so that you cannot be alone, but you can be known and cared for and prayed for. And if you've been part of a toxic church culture, if any mention of living holy or righteous before God just triggers you back to some really like terrible time, I believe you. I understand it. But know that the true holiness of God doesn't look like what you experience. The true holiness of God is something that lifts people up, brings people out instead of pushing them down. And that's the good news that we have today. I pray that we walk worthy of that calling. In the name of the Father, the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that God would bless you this week as we gather in the small groups. In the name of Jesus. Amen.